Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey everyone, it's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. The Freshman Foundation Podcast is preparing young athletes and families for every next step in their athletic journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share with a friend. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Freshman Foundation. How is Anna Hennings impacting athletes in her second act as a mental performance coach? In my early 40s, I had what some might call a midlife crisis. I decided that I wanted to impact the lives of young athletes as a sports psychology professional. Pursuing a career change at this point in my life created a lot of uncertainty about my future. However, placing my faith in the process for pursuing a life of purpose paid off. My guest in this episode, Anna Hennings, has a very similar story. Anna is a certified mental performance consultant and private practitioner who focuses on working with volleyball players. She pursued a second career in sports psychology to also live a life of purpose. In episode 54, Anna shares about her path to mental performance coaching and her experiences working with young athletes. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with Anna Hennings. Anna, hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Mike? It's great to see you. Uh, for those of you listening or watching the podcast, Anna and I were uh, students together at the same time, although I think she was a bit ahead of me in the program that we both went to for sports psychology. So uh, we're sort of reconnecting here and uh, we're going to talk to Anna about her own experiences. So I guess to get started, um, you know, like I think we were talking about before we started recording, uh, we both are in our second life, second career. Uh, so what what led you to sports psychology? You know, my first career was in marketing communication. So I worked for a lot of retailers in the San Francisco Bay Area, writing product copy, editing product copy. If you ever received one of those uh, mega catalogs in the mail from Restoration Hardware, I used to proofread those. And I hit this point where I really just wanted to do more work with people. Um, I felt like I wasn't making the impact in the world I wanted to. And so I just went on this journey to rediscover what it was that I wanted to do with mm -hmm. my career, with my life. Um, I didn't think it was writing about products anymore. Um, and yeah. I'd always had this interest in psychology. Uh, my mom is a therapist. My stepdad is um, in IO uh, psychology and mm -hmm. I'm a therapist for companies. And so I saw these different worlds and different options in the, uh, how to apply an interest in psychology, but I didn't really want to do either of those. And mm -hmm. so I just kept digging and digging and digging and realized that sports psychology was a field. And as a former athlete, it's like, hold on, we can work with just athletes. Like sign me up. This is it. It was just this light bulb moment after quite a while of, of digging and researching and thinking and reflecting and then just stumbling upon it and being like, this is it. This is what yeah. I want to do. 
Yeah. And, and it's interesting because our, and I don't know that I knew that uh, coming into this conversation. And I think that our backgrounds are really similar because I did the same thing. I sort of got to this point in my career where it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm not satisfied, but it was like, what do I want to do when I grow up? And yeah. after the doing the research and the work, it was like this confluence of, I want to help people, but I would love to help them in the sport context versus maybe being something like a therapist or a psychologist, clinical psychologist. So that's, I mean, it's, it's great that we, <laughs> we have that commonality. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so tell me about the process of deciding to go back to school and what that was like to go back to school after having been working for, you know, whatever, <laughs> 10 years. Uh, it was certainly a leap, you know, going from working nine to five, working in the city. I worked in San Francisco for many mm -hmm. years. It was a big transition to being a student again. But at the same time, I think I was so ready. I was so invested in what we were studying in that program that I just dove right in and loved it. I put everything behind being a student of this new field and really learning as much as I could to support my future self that honestly, I, I loved it. However, how big of a, however big of a transition it actually was like, um, I, I did the program in person, which was a really big benefit. I think for me, cause I started to build this completely new community that I didn't have before going back to school. And so it was this, it was a fun transition, um, but definitely different than, you know, working with uh, marketing teams, working alongside executives, having a manager, you know, it, it was a very different experience, but mm -hmm. kind of a freeing one at that. For sure. And I, again, I had a very similar experience. I mean, I was out of school for almost 20 years when I went back, but it was like this amazing, like, just deep dive into doing the work. And, you yeah. know, I think that it, it informs my work now as a, a sports psychology professional in that it required this faith, right? This growth mm -hmm. mindset, this process orientation of like, I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't know where the hell I'm going with this, but like, I'm just going to focus on what I can control now. So when I come out the other side, like I'm in a position to do something that I want to do, even though I have no idea what it's going to look like. I mean, is that, yes. does it resonate? A hundred percent resonates. And even I think going back to school as an, as an adult, like I, I think immediately within the first quarter was called the class mom and I'm like I'm not even that old but it was kind of fun to walk into this situation with that life experience and and to be able to I don't I don't know I, I don't know if that's something yeah. you want to include or not no it was yeah definitely a very I definitely resonate with what you're saying it was this huge trust in the process feeling a little bit like an outsider um because we're coming in after having been out of school for so long, having mm. had this career already, feeling like, didn't I already make this choice? I have my degree. I had a career. What am I doing? But yeah. it absolutely, it absolutely was the right decision. Yeah. And I agree with that. It was absolutely the right decision for me too. So it's, <laughs> I never have a regret about it. And uh, I, I guess, you know, to give people who are listening a little bit of background. So the way it worked for us was we had basically a year of classes. And then after a year of doing our sort of, you know, typical vanilla course requirements, we had to move into uh, field work or internships. And we started to do the work 
under supervision and, and, you know, starting to apply what we've learned. And so, you know, thinking about that, that sort of just came to me, like, what was it like for you to, to go through your field work or your internships? Like, how did you feel? Like, what were the things that challenged you when you first started to like be on your own? Oh, I have to admit, I, I loved it. I loved it. Again, it was this deep sense of, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm. This is the work that I want to be. So I, that continuously reinforced throughout the course of the internship process. I think the hardest, one of the hardest things was being totally new and bad at something again. Again, it was the complete trust in the process that was sometimes very hard and realizing like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I need some yeah, help to figure help. it out. It was really humbling. Um, at, you know, when I think you, yeah. you go so long in your career and you build up this confidence, we now know, right. How, how confidence builds and, and to go back to square one was, it was really humbling. And so I think it was really, but it was a great experience mm. to be put in that situation again um, mm-hmm. as an adult. Cause then you, it makes you more relatable to the people that you're working with who are in the process of developing their skills and everything. And, and so it's, it was a great position to be in to not only learn and practice what we were learning in, in, in class, but to practice the skills on ourselves in this situation that was so new and you're learning so much Mm. on the fly and you have to fail so much. It was hard, but I think that makes us, or at least it made me feel more equipped to help my athletes now through their bouts of failure and trusting the process and all that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think the word that comes to mind for me is gratitude. I mean, sort of the, the appreciation for the fact that after, you know, all these years of not having been in school and like just sort of going through the motions, on the, that's the way I felt in my, in my work to have the chance to go through and like really struggle, you know, in that learning process and, you know, really appreciate that I'm sort of going from square, you know, zero <laughs> from the very, very <laughs> bottom, the very bottom of the barrel where I know nothing to actually like going through this transformation from that to, Hey, I'm now a qualified professional. I have a master's degree and then ultimately sitting for our CMPC certified mental performance consultant, uh, certification, right? Like that journey is like, Oh my God, it like, it took me three to four years, you know, all in. And it was like, I did it. You know, I did it. And it was like, I got to appreciate it and really immerse myself in it, which who, you know, a lot of people don't get that opportunity in adulthood. You know, we take it for granted when we're 18, 19, 20 years old. And now we're like, Hey, this is really cool. Even though I suck at this in the beginning. Well, and I think too, it's, it's a great example to bring to the people to, I mean, I, I, I think you do too. I work with a ton of adolescent athletes, mostly youth, youth yes. athletes, not not exclusively, but the majority of them are young. And to be able to be a walking example of, you don't have to have life figured out when you go to college, when you graduate from college, you might change your mind. And that's perfectly okay. All of these decisions lead up to future experiences and you don't really know which doors are going to open when and what experience you have that's going to open some future door. And 
to, to be this walking model of you don't have to have it all figured out right when you go to college and when you graduate from college and that that's okay, I think is a important, I don't know, message to send. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I just literally just got a message in the last like three or four days from a client of mine. I haven't seen him probably in a few months, but we worked together through the summer and, you know, he's high school athlete and, uh, the weight, the pressure of what he was going through athletically was really challenging him. And so much so that he decided to step away from his sport. And like, I was like, you know, you got to do what's best for you. You know, it's not the end of the world if you take some time for yourself, because really at the end of the day, it's about you being happy, right? And enjoying your life and enjoying your sport. And if you're not like, what's the point? And he came back to me like, you know, just recently and said like, you know, like the ability to step away and really like taking from the conversations that we had, like I'm moving back toward it in a better way. And I feel good about it. And I was like, yeah, I think there is something to be said for our experience, you know, in, in like walking away from something that we've, in, we had literally invested in for tens of years in terms of our education and in like starting from the bottom and building up in a, a career and getting to a point where you're probably making some decent money. And now you're stepping away from that and going back to nothing. Right. And you're completely yeah. humbling yourself, but it's okay. Like that's part of the journey and it's okay. And if we can impart that lesson to athletes, because I think there is this natural, especially with the adolescents, the high school age, there's this natural sort of like impending or clock ticking with them about what's next? What's next? Am I going to go play in college? Am I going to go pro? And, and they feel the weight of that. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean like if you don't go to the division one college you want to go to when you're 18 and you go to JUCO or you transfer or you step away and come back. I mean, it's not, it's never over, right? You can always have a chance to go back. And I think that's really important. Yes, I completely yeah. Now, is there anything, and I know you have an athletic background as a, as a volleyball player. So is there anything from your athletic background that in, like inspired or motivated you to get into the field? Cause I know there was for me. Uh, all, all of it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I played, you know, actually way back when, when I was really little before I sprouted up to a, a, uh, prime six foot one, I was a competitive gymnast. It's, I always think that's a, a funny place to start considering um, how tall I am now. I, I certainly look absolutely nothing like a gymnast, but I was a competitive gymnast until about 12. Okay. And my body was just said, no, it's like, this is not for you, Anna. Um, you know, I had injuries, head to toe, wrist you know, uh, braces on every single joint possible, it seemed like. And so I remember at that when I made the transition from being a competitive gymnast mm-hmm. to competitive volleyball, my dad just kindly said to me at the time, like, Hey, there's this club volleyball tryout this weekend. Do you want to go check it out? Um, and so that was how I got started in um, playing competitively myself. But it, it, my interest in the sport really grew out of watching Carrie Walsh play indoor volleyball at Stanford. My dad and I used to go to those games really? and it was that's how I fell in love with the sport. I was watching her play and it was this uh, just bonding experience with my dad. And it's like, I want to do that. And so he kindly nudged me in that direction. I left gymnastics and I played volleyball only like highly competitively for about four years. Um, And I think looking back on it now, part of what motivated me to go into this field is that, 
I wasn't part of a very supportive team culture of the variety of teams I was on. It ultimately completely burnt me out of sport. Um, I didn't effectively recover from injury. Um, I didn't have coach support. I didn't have good teammate dynamics. I had no idea what to do mentally to keep myself in it. And I just said, I'm out. Um, and I think if I had had somebody um, like you or me <laughs> as part of that support when I was 15, 16, and that kind of person had been part of the programs I was in, it would have been a completely different story. I think I could have maintained the love, maintained that that mindset of of just growth and development and joy. Um, but it so quickly became a business and at such a young age. And when I didn't, when I didn't do exactly what the program wanted me to do, it, 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 it was the right choice at the time for me to leave. Let me just put it that way. And so yeah. I stopped playing after my freshman year of high school. Wow. I, that was my last year of club, uh, club volleyball, but I still loved the sport so much. Like I, um, ended up throughout college. I, I played for fun. I played in rec leagues. I became really good friends with, the, uh, a lot of the people on the men's volleyball team and the women's club team. And I would just go and like hang out and practice with them and play intramurals with them. So I really found ways to stay, to keep the sport interwoven in my life. Sure. And then as an adult, I played in a variety of, of women's and co-ed volleyball leagues. And I really ultimately stopped playing over a decade ago after having my rotator cuff surgery. So it's like I had, as an adult, I had the, the, the quintessential of volleyball shoulder surgery and kind of realized, okay, that's, that's my cue. That's my cue to balance. <laughs> well, but, but I, I get, I give you credit because I think what you described is you leaving the travel you know, culture, the, the travel program you were in or programs on your own, of your own volition, right? It was your choice, which I think that is absolutely the exception, not the rule. And the sense I get, because I don't know much of anything about volleyball, only what I've learned in the last couple of years, just observing from the outside looking in, is that it is a very, very stressful culture. And frankly, based upon what I observe from parents and hear from parents, can be a toxic culture, right? But there's a pressure of, I need to stay in this because we've invested so much in it, particularly the travel, the money, you know, going yeah. all over to these tournaments. And it's like, well, we can't, we can't cut our losses. We got to keep going. But meanwhile, it's at the expense of the wellness and, and the mental well-being of this young person who's like, you know, getting beaten up by the system. And so, you know, the fact that you were able to step away is, is pretty impressive but I'm sure also if you look back on it, you're like, I wish I could have continued to go if I had the resources to do it. Yeah. And I, I think it, it was the mental and emotional resources yeah. to do it. Especially. Yeah, that's why. And exactly. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, I see the potential for a completely different path. Had the culture been more supportive, had the team dynamics been more effective, had the mental individual level mental skills been taught. Yeah. Um, and so that became this huge motivator to be the person I needed when I was a teenager. Yes. And yeah. I echo what you said. It's I, I hear about these cultures and coaches and pressure and 
so much going into, I mean, and this isn't unique to volleyball, but the, the, the pressure to perform at a certain level in your high school years so that you can get that scholarship money or what have mm-hmm. you to go to college. And it, it is a big pressure cooker. And that's so much of, it's a part of what, what I work on with the, with the people that I Yeah. Know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, right? Like I think, you know, it's certainly a driver of why people like us exist, but sometimes yeah. I can't, I can't, I, I can't, I can't help but like question at times, you know, when it's, when I'm in my really quiet moments of like, why do people like you and me have to exist? Like, why are things so crazy that there needs to be mental health, mental performance professionals who are in there sort of just like mitigating the stress and the risk in the system rather than changing the system. And it just, you know, I think the truth of the matter is, is that some of it's just human nature. Because when I played sport in high school, I was above average and I was competitive and I loved what I did, but I also put a lot of pressure on myself. But I didn't live in a culture where everybody played travel baseball all year round. And I didn't live in a family where my parents didn't care or know about any of this stuff. They didn't know about college. So for me, it was all on me and I did it to myself. And so the truth of the matter is, is even without the system we have, we still have individuals who really put pressure on themselves to be the best they can be because they're investing in it. So like, you're, I almost feel like you're never going to change the system. So we're here to sort of be the check, right? Put the perspective <laughs> into the system so that people can continue to do what they love and not burn out and not walk away and maybe even worse, right? So like, talk to me about like some of the things that you do in your work and, and some of the issues that you deal with and how, how, how you've learned to sort of get better at working with the athletes that you work with. Yeah, that's a, whew, that's a doozy of a question. Um, <laughs> I'll, so I'll start by saying that, you know, a bulk of the work that I do is with indoor volleyball athletes and beach volleyball mm-hmm. athletes. However, they're very different sports yeah. and they have a pretty different sport culture. And I know we had talked about, that part of our theme for today was navigating transitions and the transition from an indoor volleyball player to a beach volleyball player, which is what a lot of, a lot of beach players do come from the indoor game. That is a very, I don't want to say intense transition, but the sport cultures are very different. So when I'm working with a beach volleyball athlete who has recently made the transition from the indoor team, Mm -hmm. it's a really, the work becomes it becomes more individual focused as a, and what I mean by that is the beach volleyball game is so there's a lot of focus on individual development and how, who am I going to pair with? And at least at the youth level versus the indoor teams, indoor volleyball is much more of a team and like collective focus and a focus on external. I see a lot of, of my athletes wanting external validation. They want that they want to feel it. They feel like they have to prove themselves to coaches. They feel like mm-hmm. they have to prove themselves to team to their teammates. They don't want to let their teammates down. There's a lot of how do I look to the people around me? And not to say that not to say that that doesn't exist in the beach game, but it's a different perspective. And it's a lot of how do I get people to play with me at the youth level? How do I get my, um, how do I develop the skills and get seen by the right people? Because the club scene is different. You're not on a team that you travel with all the time. So it's, um, 
it really depends on where the athlete is in their, well, in the, in their sporting sure. career and what, what their goals are. But a lot of it is navigating that sense of that sense of external validation and shifting their perspective to, to be more internal and to, to be able to validate themselves, to be able to see for themselves, how am I building and growing and developing confidence, regardless of what people say, regardless of what college coaches think, do I feel good about me? So is it, and now this is me trying to understand, is it a matter of people leaving the indoor game completely and moving and shifting to focus on the beach game or are they sort of rotating between the two in season? It, um, it's both. Um, okay. it's both. I, I have, I have a couple clients who have gone completely, they started indoor. They didn't like that. The culture of the programs they were a part of mm-hmm. and went to the beach game and have thrived. Um, and I have, I have some clients who do both. They, they have the indoor, they have their indoor programs. They have high school, they have their indoor club and then beach, the beach season, you know, comes at the end. Um, you know, it's more of a spring sport. So they kind of go all the year round with all different, Mm -hmm. um, with, with both. And so it's, it ultimately depends on, um, it certainly depends on the athlete and, a lot of times you'll see beach being used as cross training for indoor athletes and just right. a way to stay engaged and work, um, work yeah. around. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't have, you don't, I don't think you have to be an expert to understand that <laughs> the differences between the, the games are very different just in terms of like the surface you're playing on the muscles that you're using, oh the, the space and <laughs> yeah. it like, and the, 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 the cooperation, right. You have more people on an indoor game. You only have two in beach right? You're, you're jumping all this stuff. And so I would imagine it could be a really great advantage to do both. Um, but I also could see how people would specialize in one because they feel like, Hey, I need to only focus on one to get better. If I do this, it's going to be a waste of my time. Some of that I would imagine just based on what, you know, what I know is that, you know, like, I think people have those fears about, am I, you know, what's going to allow me to, 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 to be the best, Right. And mm-hmm. that's a relative term. Yeah. And do I want to lose a momentum or do I want to get away from playing indoor because I'm going to, you know, lose momentum or a coach is not going to be happy or whatever. Right. Like I, I would imagine like you're helping with some of your athletes with those decisions about what's best for them and, and validating it or helping them think through that process. A hundred percent. I always tell my parents this, uh, my athletes, parents, this when okay. we meet, but also the the athletes themselves talking about the future. I love those discussions because it's just an authentic conversation. You get them to reflect on what's important to them because there's all, I feel like athletes these days, especially the kiddos, you get input from so many different sources, mm-hmm. right? You've got a lot of them have, they've got strength and conditioning coaches. They have multiple coaches on their team. They've got their parents, they've got their teammates, like what their peers are doing. And so I always like to open up to give them time during our session to just let it all sink in and be like, what do you, what do you want? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so let's say you're, you're talking to these different D one coaches and like, do you want to spend four years in that 
particular location. Like let's put aside the, you know, the, 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 characteristics of the per- it's like for it's like think about the decision from all these different angles and to just give them the time to reflect on what do I want because I think sometimes they don't always have that space and I think it's such a it, just to create that space that yes. we do just like just think about like what's important to you yeah I mean I think you just nailed something that is is probably one of the most important things that I talk about with athletes is you know, to say it another way, and, and and I will frame it for this way for the athlete is like, why are you doing this, right? Mm-hmm. Why are you in this place, putting in all this time and all this energy only to feel conflicted, only to feel, you know, you know, down on yourself, only to feel like, you know, you're giving something up, right? And it's like, it's okay to not want it, but it's also okay to want it, but like start to like, unravel why you want it so that you can keep going and do it with a smile on your face. It comes up so often. Like what is, why are you spending 30, 40, 50 hours a week spending your parents are spending thousands and thousands of dollars to do this if you don't love it or to your, you know, to your example, why am I going to this college? Well, because they're giving me the the biggest scholarship. Okay. Obviously, that's a factor for a lot of families, but now you have to live in this place for four years. Now you have to play for this coach. Now you have to be with these teammates. Now you have to like deal with this academic environment. If that doesn't work for you, you're not going to be happy because you're human. All those factors influence you. It's not just, hey, I got a scholarship. And I think a lot of people just don't think about it that way. They don't think about the fit of the program. They don't think about their well-being. They think only about the sport. And that to me is, you know, that's, that can be that can lead to a crisis, you know. Ultimately, because right. you're making choices for the wrong reasons. And I like to think that we we help in sort of the prevention of those to an yes. extent. Like, let's Absolutely. talk about it now, so it doesn't become as big of a problem later on. Like, let's let's think through all of this. And honestly, that's some of the most fulfilling work because you start to just help them make choices. For and it's not just let me teach you how to build confidence let me teach you how to focus or to breathe it's how are you integrating this so you can be a you know a, a young adult human yeah. in a few years like absolutely love that work. yeah and 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 just sort of having looked over uh your website which i really uh, i think is great um you know you talk about being sort of a holistic practitioner right like really looking at everything about the person and i would describe myself in a very similar way like the person's got to come first for me because it's so much more um to them than just athlete and i think what happens is when people come to see me it's 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 inverted that their the the athlete portion of their identity is so large relative to everything else that they look at every decision is made through that lens every feeling or every thought they have is made through the lens of, Hey, like this is the most important part of me. And if I'm not good at this or this isn't working, like that means I'm a bad person. And that is a really heavy burden to bear and to be able to create the space to talk about that and just acknowledge that that's there and then build the awareness to start to make those changes so that life can be a little bit easier. I mean, I could see you sort of reacting to that. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I think some of the most effective work I've, I I do or that I feel like I've done in the past is mm-hmm. when you start to incorporate that, you help an athlete do the work outside of their sport. It's like practice this 
just in life, not just when you go to a race or when you go to a meet or you go to a tournament, like practice this Mm -hmm. when you wake up in the morning, how you talk to yourself, for instance, matters regardless of what you're doing, right? Whether you're an athlete or not, whether you're right. It's so it's, it's, but we can't do that as effectively if we're not trying to learn who we're working with from all these different angles. And I think that's the most important work is when you start to get them or help them realize that they can help themselves in all these areas of their life. Yeah. So, and I think that speaks to the idea that every client that we have is unique, right? And that, I think that's one of the tenets that we've, you know, I think we can agree is something that practitioners looking at every person individually and you have to understand them and assess them that way. But and I'm going to ask this question specific to volleyball athletes. Are yeah. there, are there like things that often that you see come up typically or come up repeatedly in terms of the issues that the volleyball athletes that you're working with face? Yes. And I will say this with the caveat that I don't think this is necessarily specific to volleyball, Okay, but I see a very common, a few very common threads through the athletes I work with, most of whom are volleyball players. And one is how to respond to to mistakes and how to unravel that sense of perfectionism. If I make a mistake, then that means I'm a bad player. That means I'm not going to get playing time. That means my teammates are mad at me. And how to unravel that sense of just, no, that's not true. (laughs) You know, so to, to counterbalance the criticism that is so intertwined with their mental stories mm-hmm. is a huge thing frequent I, that I work on frequently w- with my, with my athletes. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's unique to volleyball, but no, it's not. <laughs> I see it in almost all my volleyball players, beach and indoor. Um, and the other thing is this overfixation on winning and Again, I do not think this is in any way a fish uh, specific to volleyball, though I do see it a lot, is this sense of, of being afraid to lose mm-hmm. and how that affects how they play when they are down a few points. Or if they walk into a game thinking, this team's really good, we can't beat them. Oh so, my goodness. It's, it's my least favorite. It's the, it, it, it is the most confounding thing to me. And I see this as a parent. I see it as a, a mental performance coach. I, I've seen it as a volunteer coach. That idea like, oh, these guys are, or these girls are really good. We're going to lose because we're not as good as them. And it's like, we didn't even play the game yet. One, two, you can only control what you do. So who cares who's on the other side, just go play. And it seems so intuitive, but it's something that comes up so much. Yes. And I actually had, I had a, I had a a person tell me once, Anna, you're not competitive enough. You're telling me not to think about winning. And I'm like, okay, I obviously need to shift how I talk about this because I, I didn't sell it right to that one person. But, but ultimately it's this sense of whether the game is 0-0 zero, zero or 23-24 and it's the match-winning point, you need to be focused Just on the same. Right. It's like you're still in the one moment. You need to do your best for that moment. 
to look at the score. And I just remembered, Emily told me, and I have to look at the score. And I'm like, okay, this is a bigger conversation. <laughs> but no, but I, I love, I love that you're, you're, you're talking about that because I think it's something that I've gone through as well. And the distinction that I've broke through on for me is I was always of the bias of winning and losing don't matter. And I started to, and I realized this more as a parent than anything. Hmm. Winning does matter to kids. The question mm-hmm. now is not whether or not winning matters. It's why does it matter so much? And that to me leads to the, is it mat- does it matter so much? Because that individual person, that kid really me- believes that it, it matters so much to them in their life. Or is it because they're trying to make somebody else happy or somebody else has told them that it's so important that you win, that they've co-opted that, you know, it's like they've, they've, they've adopted that thought and that feeling from somebody else. They feel like I can't let them down versus like, if I were to just lose, I would probably walk away and just go on living my life. But because this adult over here is telling me I need to win. And if I'm not happy, if I'm happy when I, I lose, then there's something wrong with me. Then all of a sudden it's, it's different, right? A hundred percent. That is such a good point, Mike. Just that sense of what is entwined with that sense of winning. Why? Yes. Like I, I, yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, so the other thing I think I've realized as well is, and, and this is really more experiential from the last couple of years, working with athletes and across a variety of sports, whether it's baseball, soccer, basketball, individual sports, whatever, like a lot of these clubs, now they're private, they're for profit. And the way they market their club is wins and losses. Therefore, if the club is not winning, then it it, potentially they're losing money. So it becomes Mm -hmm. like we have to win because we need to win this tournament so that we can go stick it up on our website so more people will come to the club. And and, and the people who run those clubs or coach those teams may not even realize that that's what they're doing, but they're creating this culture of if it's a winner, winner else, and the kids are wearing it. And a lot of kids are either quitting or they're leaving these programs, they're rotating around because you're not teaching them the right lessons. And, and, and unfortunately we are then thrust into the equation of how do I teach or rewire, frankly, or reprogram the thinking so that they can go into this with perspective to say, Hey, it's okay if you lose, as long as you've done everything you can to win, right? Because there's only so much you can control. That's not an easy thing to do as a professional. (laughs) And especially not when you're working with athletes who are, who are in a system that is saying it's not okay to lose. Right. To, to, because they're starting to get these conflicting messages. Yes. And this sense, the way I, the, what I've seen a lot of is, is how clubs advertise their college commits. Again, I'm working with a lot of youth athletes. And so I'm, when mm-hmm. I had several athletes this past fall who wanted to switch uh, which club they played for, but they've been playing for this one club for many years. And so now they're thinking about switching and they have to look at, well, am I going to get on the right team to get seen by the yes. right college coaches to be recruited to the right? And they're not even in high school yet. Yeah. And they're looking at, well, where, if I go to this club, what colleges can I go to? And I, I guess there, there inherently isn't anything wrong with that. I just, 
<laughs> I guess it just puts the pressure on so outcome thinking. Yes. So much outcome thinking and not just, hey, are you going to enjoy your experience of getting better as an athlete playing for this person or playing yeah. for this club? Yeah. And there's a lot of comparison. And that's definitely something I see in social media because mm-hmm. I, like we were talking about this before we started recording, I work, for instance, I work a predominant number of my clients are New Jersey based baseball players. Okay. In that world, if you're in social media paying attention, which I do now because I'm just curious about what goes on and I want to see, you know, sort of what's happening. There's so much comparison. Joe Smith is going to play here and Joe Smith plays on the same club as Johnny Johnson and Johnny Johnson doesn't have an offer yet to go play at division one level. So Johnny Johnson now feels crappy about himself because his teammate is now going to play division one and he doesn't have an offer. And does that mean he stinks or does that mean that, you know, he's mm-hmm. not going to get it? Or does that mean like, he's just not good enough? Like there's this mm-hmm. whole world mm-hmm. of like in your face, public comparisons. And I have to imagine it's very similar in volleyball and even other totally. sports. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So I want to ask you, cause you have talked about parents and let's call it adults. Like what do you see from the adults who are in that community that you operate in that is good and, and maybe is not so good. And like, you know, how do you manage that as, as a professional? On one hand, I see so many adults who want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not be in this profession if there were not parents who wanted to give their kiddos all the resources possible for their own personal development. Mm-hmm. I think that is amazing. I, it's I feel privileged. Every single athlete I work with, I see as an honor and a privilege that I am on their athletic journey. They picked me. And that, I think that is a huge step of, especially if you have parents who, they. I think a lot of them have told me, like, my kid won't talk to me about this stuff, but I know they need to talk about this stuff with somebody and that somebody needs to not be attached to the sport organization and they don't need, they can't be a, a family member. So we want, so will you work with them? Right. And so I see that as a huge benefit and a great thing. Not, not just because I'm, I'm, it, it feeds my business that aside, because these kiddos are getting resources early on in their lives that they get to then work on and have for the rest of their lives. And mm-hmm. that is, that is beautiful. I don't remember seeing that like when I was a kid and sure, like it certainly wasn't around as much or as the conversation was not open in nearly the way it is now. Yeah. I love and that. I because love it's, seeing you- that. Your experience is exactly similar to mine, which is to say that conversation of my kid needs to talk to somebody who's not connected to this, somebody who's objective, somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight. And to the parents' credit, they understand, like, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want my kid to be able to, like, not carry this burden around all the time because I can't help them the way they need to be helped or like no matter what I do or no matter what I try as a parent, it's still not good enough because of the dynamic 
because my primary role is to be a caregiver, to be somebody who's there to make sure that I'm stay alive and I thrive. Sports further down the ch- chain, it just it, it muddies the picture, and I see that myself as a parent. So a lot of times people ask me that question, and, and I'm curious to, to hear your opinion. Like when people talk to me, like, well, I'm sure you, I mean, not to be stereotypical, but they'll say like, I'm sure you get some crazy parents. And, and the answer, <laughs> the answer I give is usually no, because the ones who come to me know or are, are aware enough to know that A, their kid needs somebody and B, they can't do it. The crazy parent, right, to say that, and I've actually heard that someone's used that phrase recently on my podcast. I don't love it. Because parents love and care about their kids. I think they just get over-invested in sport. But the parent who's over, over-invested doesn't see, like they get, blur- they get um, blinded by that. They don't think that their kid needs to talk to somebody because everything's okay. Or if they were to talk to somebody, that might look like there's something wrong with the kid. So we're not going to do that. I mean, is that similar to what you see? I, I agree with you. I, I think almost all of the parents in my, the parents in my practice, right? The the parents of the kiddos that I have in my practice are incredibly supportive and uh, not, they're supportive parents. They want the best for their kids. And then they, they want what's best for their kids, not so that their kids can go get into a school, but so that they're kids can feel good about what they're doing, whether that means they stay in the sport or leave. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say I have any quote unquote crazy parents. And I don't like that term either. No. And I'm, I, I'm trying to think of a different way of putting right. like the helicopter parent, I guess is another way I've, I've heard it. Um, and, and perhaps that's just speaks to the um, newness of my own consulting practice. I don't, I don't know. I feel like maybe right. there, there will be a time when, when, there, there is a very over-involved parent that is um, part of, a, you know, in the family of, of an athlete I'm seeing. But right now, it's it's not my experience. And I don't know if that's normal or very atypical, um, but currently, it's not my experience. Okay. So so I have t- two more questions as we're sort of running out of time here. So on that, on that, um, on that note, how do you involve parents in the process? You know, this is an ongoing process, (laughs) is a way to put it, because it is a very delicate line to, I don't have a great process for it yet. Let me just put it out that way. Me neither. So I'm not, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Neither do I. I was curious. (laughs) Honestly, I, 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 I stayed general is, is the, the best way to put it, I suppose is, you know, I see the athlete, their kiddo is my client and I operate with full confidentiality. Um, And however, if I need to, you know, I will get a a parent who will email me or text me and be like, Hey, this happened. Like, can you talk to so-and-so about it? And it's in those moments where I'm like, well, I have to think through, how do I bring this up with the kid? Like I, I don't want them to think I'm talking with the parent behind their back, but I also really value what a parent's observations and what they bring to the table. And so I've actually been thinking about switching to a more like partial confidentiality with the permission of, of, of clients so that there's a bit more of a two-way street, not in a, 
hey, so-and-so told me this today. Let me go tell your parents about it. But to create a, a bit more of an open pipeline of communication to the parent that just says, hey, we're working on these general topics. Yes. And so sometimes I do that by email anyways. And I tell that to the kid, like, if I need to talk to your parents, I keep it general. I'm not telling them specifically things that you tell me. Right. That's exactly, that's exactly what I do. Yeah. It's exactly what I do now. Cause I, I I do feel an obligation at times and it's not systematized right now, but I definitely feel an obligation to communicate with parents about what we're working on and how things are going. And, but the thing that I've been thinking about and I'm, I'm thinking about moving towards is incorporating some sort of family session into Mm -hmm. the equation where it wouldn't be as frequent as one-to-one, but it might be one to four, right? Every fourth mm-hmm. session, there's a family session. We talk about openly what's going on, what we're working on. Because I've had a couple of situations where parents have told me things on the side that I did not know. And I was not able to serve the young person as well as I could if I would have known it. And it is a very, very fine line, but I've been reading articles recently about triangulation, right? How do I work in the parent's perspective, the coach's perspective, the the third party who sees something that is completely misaligned with what the young person's telling me. And I don't know who to believe, but at least if you know there's a disconnect, you could start to ask those questions in a non-invasive way to see like, is the adult just misperceiving things or is the young person like, deluding themselves into thinking everything's okay and they're really having this problem that they don't want to share either consciously or subconsciously, right? That's been like one of the most complicated parts of figuring out how to to work with young people because they don't necessarily have full agency in the process just from the perspective of mom and dad are paying. In a lot of cases, mom and dad are asking them to come see me or you because they think they need it versus the kids say, I really need this. So now all of a sudden they're being sort of co-opted into this situation and they're sort of like, yeah, you're my client, young person, but your mom and dad pay the bills. It is such a complicated and tricky relationship and trying to find the best way to navigate that is really hard. <laughs> it's it is. Really hard. And, and Mike, I could talk to you more. I know we're close on time and I, I'm happy to talk to you more about this offline because I, yeah, we should. I've, I've had conversations with other CMPCs on this exact topic, asking the exact questions. And I'd be happy to share more about what I'm learning and and offer some resources. So definitely let's keep that, that line of communication open because I, I am a hundred percent in that exact same boat that you are experiencing. Good to know. And, and I, I definitely, that's also been a struggle here. Um, for me, actually, while we're recording here, I'm going to, I don't, I don't ever do this, but I'm going to text my next appointment, let them know I'm running five minutes late so we can, um, finish up. But so, so on that, yeah, I think that's one of the things I struggle with as a practitioner too, is, uh, isolation, right? Not collaborating with my fellow practitioners and Mm -hmm. like getting so like isolated that I'm not really learning and I'm not growing and I'm not, you know, getting that sort of peer consultation because of just the way the world works. And I think that there's so much value in that. And so to have this conversation, oh, by the way, on a recorded line is really, (laughs) is really cool and very valuable. Um, so, so with that being said, the last question I'll ask, and I ask everybody the same question and I'll give you a little bit of wiggle room. The, The way I, the question is, if there's one thing, one piece of advice that you would leave for somebody who's listening, it can be a parent, it could be an athlete, 
what would that piece of advice be? Ooh. I know. This, okay, I will leave with, this comes from a concept at the heart of, of my holistic practice and, and it really gets to being self-compassionate and it is not a term that a lot of athletes like because it sounds too soft. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's actually a ton of research that showcases the exact opposite. And that advice is to treat yourself like you would treat your best friend on and off the court. And I think that's geared a bit more toward an athlete perhaps than a parent, but treat yourself like you would treat your best friend. That goes to, especially at how you would talk to yourself and how you would comfort and support yourself. Yeah. I love that. And the way I frame the question to my clients is, would you talk to a teammate the way that you talk to yourself? And invariably answer is no. And I think to go further, I think that applies to parents as a parent and knowing a lot of parents who are in the space of youth sports, mm-hmm. they beat the crap out of themselves because they think they're not doing enough for their kid. And the truth of the matter is, is that you're doing more than enough. And sometimes it's up to your kid or it's up to your coach or it's up to some other force to help things move the way they're going to move. And you don't always have to think there's more you can do because you're doing a lot. And I think it's a message that should resonate with parents as well. And I would say the same thing to them. So it's a great piece of advice, a great way to end. I know it's a hard (laughs) question, but it was wonderful to speak to you. It was so good to see you. I'm glad that you're you're doing well. I'm glad that you're out there fighting the fight like I am. And um, I think it's a great conversation for for us to have. and, And hopefully we could do it again sometime soon. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored and it was great to see you and and chat and and to feel validated for some of the things that (laughs) as another solo practitioner, it's like, oh yeah, we are. So to be continued more to more conversations like this, please. It was, it was very filling and, and I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Same. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. So What's your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Anna Hennings? My biggest takeaway is that the mental skills that we teach to athletes are skills that they can use in all facets of life. We as mental performance coaches have the privilege to positively impact the lives of young people through our work. My conversation with Anna reinforces this fact. My suggestion to young athletes is to find joy in the process of growth and improvement. We often must find faith in the process when the outcomes are not exactly what we would like them to be. I want to thank Anna for her kind generosity and the wisdom she shared with the Freshman Foundation community. You can learn more about Anna by visiting her website at AnnaHennings.com to learn about how mental performance coaching can help your mind work for you rather than against you. Visit MichaelVHuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back soon for episode 55. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, 
follow along on Instagram at the Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks. Ready to get better.